0: Hello and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer.
1: And I'm Jim Elliott.
0: And today we're joined by Andrew Muir. Andrew, hello. Hello, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. Andrew Muir is a freelance writer and a teacher of English literature and language. His current commitments include teaching at the, am I gonna say this correctly, the Leigh School?
2: No, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) They'll they'll be very annoyed. (laughs) (laughs) It's the Leigh School. Leading independent school.
0: (laughs) Probably the most renowned school in all of the UK, and I've just butchered it. (laughs) The Lees School of Cambridge, and uh, delivering a variety of talks at conferences, conventions, and on literature and drama courses. Publications include two books on Bob Dylan as a live performer, Razor's Edge and One More Night, plus a study of Dylan's lyrics, Troubadour. So that's a total of three books and counting and an examination of historical and contemporary outdoor Shakespeare performances called Shakespeare in Cambridge. And his latest book came out in 2019 was entitled, is entitled, Bob Dylan and William Shakespeare, the true performing of it. So now we have four books on Bob Dylan and counting.
2: Yeah, well, you could say three and a half, make it sound slightly less obsessive, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And notice that Shakespeare's catching up. He's coming on in the outside lane That's right.
0: Good so for him. you've written quite a, quite a bit about Bob Dylan and you've written a book about the history of the Cambridge Shakespeare Festival, which you say in the introduction has changed your life. So both of these bards, as you call them, Shakespeare and Dylan, have obviously had a profound impact on you. So how did your fascination with which each of them originally take hold?
2: The, um, the Bob Dylan one is, is probably easier to start with. I realise that your audience are more Shakespeare orientated, uh, but I'm not sure if that means I should concentrate on Bob more. But uh, the, the, <laughs> the, Dylan <one> was, <laughs> the Dylan one was just a teenager growing up in the, the 70s. My sister was a couple of years older than me, and she, uh, she was a great sister. She always uh, involved me in everything her friends were doing. And as they got into music, I kept hearing them talking about Bob Dylan. All I heard was the name all the time. And Dylan was in a... a kind of retreat at the time or probably that's not true but with hindsight but at the time we thought he was in a bit of a retreat the music press thought he was so there wasn't really very much about him and I had this peculiar period where I kept hearing about him but he almost wasn't there Um, and then he brought out blood on the tracks and at the same time as I got blood on the tracks I heard the all the 1960s masterworks and bootlegs and I went Slightly obsessive, one might say. Uh, and round about the same time as that, I was fin- finishing off at school and we had Macbeth for our final exam at school, which uh, changed my life for Shakespeare because up until then at school, we hadn't really been taught Shakespeare in any way except for torture.
1: You know? <laughs>
2: we had a, a class of 38 on the outskirts of Glasgow uh, in Scotland and basically our Midsummer Night's dream was you stood up and you recited ten lines. Then you sat down and the person next to you recited the next 10 which sounds pretty horrendous, but to make it even worse, it didn't matter what the 10 lines were. They could be uh, they could be introductions, you know, Trumpets blare or whatever. They could be half of Titania, then half of the next person. It didn't matter. What Every were they t- thinking? Uh, I, I, well, I, I, I've worked it out years later. Every time you said bottom or Titania, the entire class, you know, laughed through things like that. <laughs> uh, I, I suspect now it was an exercise in crowd control and the teacher was getting marking done from the class before. I really, really? don't know. <laughs> But it it certainly put me off. But then when I was studying Macbeth for my hires, the the language in Macbeth uh, just blew my mind. But notice it's all literature at this point. It's a lot later that I I become convert to live as opposed to literary appreciation. So uh, interesting distinction. Yes, core distinction in in at least half of the many books that you nicely mentioned. (laughs) Because, you know, that's that's, um, one of the points of the last book is that these two people are revered for their words uh, rightly so in my opinion but it's the live performance of them that makes it and the combination of those two things uh, just fascinates me.
0: They're both Americans that's probably the reason <laughs>
2: <laughs> Well actually uh, actually in, in America you will certainly get more you know more, more vestiges of Shakespearean language I'll give you that you know so the boats went across there they went up the Appalachian Mountains they didn't change the language for 200 years. Can't get much more Shakespearean than that. Nope. And and of course, that's where the Appalachian ballads came down and affected Dylan with Shakespearean language. Would that be the connection between Shakespeare and Dylan? It's an insight into one connection, which is they have shared background of language coming from a variety of sources, one being the King James Bible and the common prayer book. So you've got all the religious language. You've got nursery rhymes. So Handy Dandy is a Dylan song. And also, of course, in King Lear, you've got Handy Dandy, Justice and Thief. There's lots of nursery rhymes that they both refer to. Probably Dylan's most famous song is Like a Rolling Stone and it begins once upon a time. Same album, we mentioned Cinderella, which is, you know, basically the King Lear story, you could say. There are lots of direct Dylan references um, to King Lear. One chapter in the book is a compendium of possibly about 80% of the direct Shakespeare references in, in Dylan but you could do a whole book that was just Dylan quoting Shakespeare. But to go back to what I was saying, you got nursery rhymes, the Bible, and the other one which came up with Appalachia is the ballads. The ballad tradition. So you have the ballads at the same time as Shakespeare, and some of the songs that are prevalent in Greenwich Village when Dylan's playing there at the beginning of his career date all the way back to they actually came out, you know, during Shakespeare's lifetime. Oh wow! So, so there's lots of shared uh, there's lots of shared uh, language background, a lot more than you would think, given the you know the huge distance between them. But then you've got the problem of the Bible and Shakespeare and the folk, the folk ballads, in influencing all the writers in between them as well. So you can't, you can't necessarily say. That it's a direct connection between Dylan and Shakespeare. You know, uh, Allen Ginsberg was uh, Dylan's friend. Another American for you there, Garrett. Uh, yeah. Allen Ginsberg was Dylan's friend and he would quote Shakespeare, both privately to Dylan and uh, in, in his own poems and Dylan could pick it up from there. So there's lots of different sources. One of the interesting things is when Dylan wants to make it clear that he's making a direct reference, he's got ways of doing that.
0: So you and, you and, and- Dylan have that in common, perhaps, you, you indicate that Dylan's fascination with Shakespeare probably also began in school.
2: We think so. If you follow the biographies, Dylan seems to have had a very inspirational teacher at high school, and there are mentions of, of Shakespeare and done there. Sorry, I meant another uh, shared resource is the classics, um, which Dylan also did at school. He was in the Latin Club, would you believe, at school? Oh, wow. And he quotes Ovid almost as much as, uh, as Shakespeare does. No, no, nobody quotes Ovid as much as Shakespeare. But he, <laughs> he quotes Ovid and, and Homer and Virgil uh, a lot, and more increasingly this century. Well, these are,
0: these are lifelong fascinations for you then, both to Shakespeare and to Dylan. Yeah, well,
2: well, I was saying the mid-70s, so, so we're talking about 74, 75, they both came into my life, and I think at that age, it's just when you're exploring everything, and I went to university very young, so I went to university and uh, I started reading uh, Dostoevsky and Sartre, not, they were part of my university course, I didn't read any of the course, I just read things for fun, you know, <laughs> uh, and so the four of them have stayed with me throughout all my adult life, Dylan, Shakespeare, Dostoevsky and Sartre, I don't really think you need much more of them. <laughs> we believe that all you need is Shakespeare but um yeah yeah well, yeah yeah I, well actually uh, you know I'm quite happy with that Yeah, I do think he I do think he includes all of the ones I've mentioned I don't think any of the other ones I've mentioned come anywhere close to it. so you know if you send me away with one person it will be with Shakespeare
1: well, well good 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 I, I'm curious because the title of your book is the true performing of it and so I think we can accept that when you perform Shakespeare your experience of Shakespeare changes sure what about Dylan? When you see him live, what about your experience with Dylan changes?
2: Well, for a start, whatever you're hearing won't be the same version you've ever heard before, which, again, is the same as going to a Shakespeare performance. So you could go and you could hear a song like Don't Think Twice It's All Right played as a folk song one night, see him the next night, and if he plays it again, he can play it as a blues song. So obviously that's different. But even if he plays it in the same style, he never inflects the words the same way. Dylan is very much an improvisational feeding off the audience artist or indeed not feeding off the audience and just telling you what's on his goddamn mind at that moment. (laughs) Uh, So you can hear don't think twice as, oh, I'm really sorry, I've lost her or, as you know, she's left me, I hate her and so forth. You can hear it in all kinds of different ways. But even if he plays it in the same style, he'll change the word even within the one performance. So if he's singing the chorus, he won't emphasize the same words each time. It's not like going and listening to a record. So you, you actually experience them uh, as new performances. He also rewrites them radically. He'll change, he'll change the lyrics by a verse or by an entire song or just a line, but it'll be a crucial line and he'll make sure you're paying attention. And if you go and see, say, five Bob Dylan shows in a row, that might horrify your audience, sorry. But if you go yeah. and see five Bob Dylan shows in a row, you're not seeing the same five shows, <laughs> even when the set list doesn't change. And for a very large period of time the set was changed. I saw him in two consecutive nights in the nineteen nineties and he didn't repeat a single song. Wow. So That's you can't impressive. you can't you can't get much more of a different experience than That's that. And in both nights, none of them sounded like the recorded versions that are famous.
0: We're only a few minutes into the interview, you've already mentioned my favorite song. I think. Oh
2: good. <laughs> I don't think twice, presumably. <laughs>
1: So what's Yeah, yours? Sorry,
2: don't think twice. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't put this down as a Shakespeare connection. I put this down, I've got a, a warning in the book to people who picking it up and thinking, what's he doing putting these two together? I, I think there'll be a, a large number of people who, who probably think that. And one of the problems is you can put any two artists together. You know, I, I once edited a magazine on, on Bob Dylan and somebody wrote an article on Bob Dylan and Dylan Thomas and they started with 10 quotes from each and you were to guess who the quote was referring to or which one said it. And by about quote three, you realise whichever one you said it was, it was going to be the other one <laughs> right, right. Uh, and, and there are these connections between any artist and of course there are huge dissimilarities between the two And I point out that there can be coincidences. So there are, don't think twice it's all right. You may be aware since it's your favorite song. There's more than one released version of it, even officially. And Dylan changed the lyrics. So at the end, he was talking about a lamp and he changed it to light and he changed it back and he changed it back to light again. So that at the end of it, it's actually not dissimilar to Othello killing Desdemona and saying, first put out the light and then put out the light, the same oral pun that he's making. I'm not saying it's at all a direct Shakespeare influence, so I don't want people to get that idea. What I'm actually putting in the book is, if you know both artists, these things can go off in your mind. And the fact that they're live performers of literary works means that you get the the punning, the oral punning, where a, a word like sun S-O-N or S-U-N or a word like I, I meaning you as a person and I being what you see through. They play on these puns and actually there's a whole set of puns that they both play on as, as well as all the ones that, that they do. They both love puns. They pun all the time. Yeah. I think as you Samuel know, Johnson sorry, I'm, I'm, I, I forgot I was speaking to a Shakespeare audience. As yeah. you know, yeah. what, was it, <laughs> Johnson, what was it Samuel Johnson says? I wish he'd stop quibbling. Yeah. It drives yeah. me mad. He does hated it. Yeah. yeah, I love it. <laughs>
0: the performative nature of both of these bards as you call them seems to be very important to your conception of them it's it's right there in the title right the true performing of it why why the true performing of it
2: Partly it's a mea culpa because I grew up, and I still am indeed, a literary person. That was my original background. So I was the kind of person who's reading Shakespeare in a, with a torch you know, you know, late at night, working out all the connections between the words and everything, and not not thinking for a minute that all of these depend on the context in which it was first performed. And I've been I've just been very lucky in life. I happened to be living at the time when Dylan started in 1988, what we call the never-ending tour, and he kept up until this year for obvious reasons. He's toured every single year since 1986. There's been plenty of opportunity to see him. As far as Shakespeare goes, I I mean, I was always going to Shakespeare. It's not that I ignored the live thing, but my emphasis was wrong. And then they rebuilt the Globe Theatre, or recreated the Globe Theatre in London. And there's been two Huge sections of that, I mean, years, consecutive years, where the performances have just been just a fabulous thing to go and see. And then I discovered the Cambridge Shakespeare Festival right on my doorstep when we moved to Cambridge. I didn't, that isn't why I moved here. I wish I could claim that. (laughs) And I I really, and I saw these outdoor performances with the interaction, all the things that would have happened in the original time with Shakespeare, especially when they were forced to go out and tour. You know, you've got a company of 11 people, and one of them breaks their arm just before it starts and just happens to be playing a main role. You know, how do you cover it? And you know all of those things happened. And, and I noticed that lots of the lines I'd been analysing for literary merit, which of course they have, you know, I do think he's the greatest poet as well as the greatest dramatist. But I had missed the fact that there was a very good logical, practical reason for it, you know, to do with exits and entrances or staging, or you need to leave time for something else. So as you may have kind of guessed, when I get interested in something, I get very interested in it. And so I wrote this book on the Cambridge Shakespeare Festival. At the same time as I was updating the live dylan book and so the 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 combination of the two just came together and it's also a bit of me saying i'm sorry all you people who do live entertainment i was focusing on the wrong thing yeah
1: well what's interesting to me about the live versus the The red, right, version of Shakespeare is that you're a teacher of English literature. So when you approach, do you teach Shakespeare?
2: I do. I was teaching them last year to year nines with 13, 14-year-olds. I do some teaching in the summer, possibly to anticipate your question. As often as possible, I get my pupils to act. Where there is any opportunity, and of course I can't help it if I'm talking about a line I talk about different performances I've seen in the different way they play it. Although it's not the same, we do have a, a large number of videoed dramatic performances. I don't mean films because you lose, uh, the, all, the, well, you lose all the magic in, in many ways, or you get a different magic, but we get films of globe performances, RSC performances, off the same scene. So I play those and discuss.
1: You were talking about puns earlier and in our back and forth before this interview, you mentioned something called the instability of revered verse. I'm assuming that pertains to both Shakespeare and Bob Dylan, but I'd like you to flesh that out a little bit. What do you mean by the
2: instability of revered verse? Let's say I say to you a a, a Dylan song, like Tangled Up in Blue. That's mine. There you go. You mentioned my fave. <laughs> yeah, it's mine too. <laughs> to, sorry, get it. We're, we're together on this one. Yes. Um, so, Tangled Up in Blue, when we say that, what do we actually mean? Do we mean the, the version we first heard on record? Do we mean the version we first heard live? Do we mean the version he wrote in 1984? Do we mean the ver- any of the versions that came out in a box set of all the studio sessions for it? So that includes versions before the one on the album, after the one on the album. Do we mean the very first version he put in his little notebook at the time? He sketched it out for ages and he started writing it. Which one do we mean? Do we mean the last one you heard or the first one you heard or the one on the album? Or, or King Lear, which, King Lear? which King, right. King Lear do you go for? You know, right. Do you have the two servants coming and being nice to Gloucester or trying to be nice to Gloucester after he's lost his sight? Or do you go for the one without that? Do you go for the one? Which ending do you go for?
1: Right, and which
2: version do you go for? The and which you version? The
1: Kellen version, or do you go for the? Yeah, know,
2: exactly. Kind of I, I, and and it, back in the day, if you went to see him, do you do you go to a version that lasts for two and a half hours because the light's good that day and the audience are into it, or or do you go to one that's an hour and a half because the audience are a bit restless, and there's a bit of trouble, and the clown decides he wants to be the star of the show, so he starts saying all his lines and forget Shakespeare altogether. It's not going to be the same version. That's the great thing about. it. I mean, you the experts on this that's the great thing about life oh. isn't it it's ephemeral yeah. and that's what I was saying about we revere the words rightly but without the performance you know when, when I used to write on, on Dylan's songs I used to write them critically I used to listen to cover versions and it would write down everything they missed Everything that was lost in Dylan performing it. And there you've got your article written for you. It's a good clue for people out there wanting to write it. And and for Garrett's sake, let's pick Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. Pick somebody else's version of Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, and note down everything that's missing from the Dylan version.
1: There you go. It's funny because I was reading instability as something that was perhaps a negative. But what you're saying is that it's an incredible positive because it's so fluid.
2: Yes. And I think I was asked about the fascination, and that that's my fascination, that you cannot pin it down. If you do, it's, you know, it's a cliche, but it's like putting a beautiful butterfly behind the glass case, you've killed the butterfly. But I'll give you an example, in 1995, I followed Dylan through European spring tour, and I went to many different concerts, and he had a new version of Mr. Tambourine Man, completely new arrangement, completely different emphasis. It was a really good version. We all loved it, which was a fatal flaw on our part. And he got it better and better and better until one night at Manchester, he got it absolutely perfect. And then he dropped that version altogether. Never played it again. Once it's perfect, it's gone.
1: Yeah, let it go. So no, the
2: instability, sorry, was, was absolutely meant as a positive, but it was also meant that, uh, again, this is me going back to my literary self and ticking my literary self off with a big wagging finger. If you mm. could see me on video, my finger is wagging at myself. Is <laughs> that I'm poring over a, a you know, printed text which is one version of it and and that's that's not what it's like and the magic in a way is in how it changes life in front of an audience and especially if you can see their faces and see their reaction.
1: It's a really lovely lovely way to think about it.
2: Well it's it's to their it's to their credit that that's the way I think about it they they made me uh, and all the great actor well Dylan obviously is a performer and all the great actors and directors that have given me such wonderful Shakespeare experiences.
0: I'm not sure I can ask a cheeky question because I'm an American and that adjective doesn't exist in our vocabulary but I'll try. In in terms of enduring legacy, so there's there's no question that Dylan made a profound impact on at least one generation and that some would say that his impact was more profound than any other singer, songwriter, poet of that generation. But how do you think his legacy will compare with Shakespeare's legacy in the future? So do you think people will still be listening and performing Dylan when the beat generation, if you like to call it, that is gone?
2: I'd like to answer that in two ways, if I may. First of all, nobody's legacy will ever be anything like Shakespeare's. And I do make that very clear at the, at the beginning of the book. You know, I think Dylan is the most important artist of my lifetime. I would get into an argument and say he's the most important post-World War II artist. But I would always accept other people saying other things. I would not accept anybody arguing that Shakespeare isn't the most important artist. You know, Tolstoy was basically wrong and everybody else is right. Shakespeare is the greatest. The more you get into him, the more you appreciate how much there is and for all ages they say, for a man for all time. And he will, he will go on in his legacy. I think if anything, it will grow. I think there'll be more Shakespeare performances, more Shakespeare connections seen to new life. We're forever discovering things. As far as Dylan goes, obviously it's a question mark. And people who, throughout history, if people, you know, if you were to go back to the beginning of the Romantic movement, it's interesting to know who might have been predicted as the one to survive. If you look at people's diaries and predictions, we often get these things wrong. You said Dylan's one generation. It's many, many more than one generation now. You know, it's, it's a long time since pop started, 1960, 60 years ago. The last time I was at a show, okay, there were there were more people with, I was going to say my colour of hair, which is grey, but there's so little <laughs> of it left. There were, there were more bald or grey-haired people than not. However, there was a very large, although it was a minority, it was a large percentage of young people. I think Dylan will last. I, the, I've got a whole bit in my book about the Nobel, Dylan getting the Nobel Literary Prize, which, as you can imagine, both pleased me, and annoyed me because he's a live performer. And I was worried that they were forgetting about his voice. It may surprise you that to to hear um, that I think his voice is just as important as anything else he does. And that's the problem. That was the second part I wanted to come to. I think Dylan's legacy will survive. What will impact it is that he won't be there to perform it anew. I've been saying to you all the way through this, the the magic of seeing Shakespeare as you don't see the same play twice, the magic of hearing Dylan perform And there have been some great cover versions, but given the thousands and thousands of cover versions, it's a very small percentage and they they all miss something. He won't be there to do it. So that will change the legacy because then people will be listening to recordings. The good news about it though, for any Dylan fans out there, uh, and that's the only ones that will be left now because we haven't said enough about Shakespeare, (laughs) for any Dylan fans out there, there's a Dylan archive which is opening to the public next week at the University of Tulsa, which has an an unbelievable collection of everything Dylan's ever written, and I mean like written ideas in the back of a napkin in a restaurant, all the way from the beginning of his career to a few years ago, they've got everything, Uh, they've got far more than we ever thought was possible. So there are hundreds and hundreds of of hours of old performances but new to us to hear to come so there's the legacy will go it will go on forever but it will never be as powerful as Shakespeare because who is folks who's as powerful as Shakespeare and Dylan says that you know I've got at the back of the book is an appendix I've got 80% or so of direct Dylan interviews of Shakespeare because again there's so many you just go on and on and on but you know he says you go and see Shakespeare this English language at its peak that's what he says. he says nobody will ever get there it's like a stick of dynamite goes on he's got this wonderful thing about when he's sitting in an audience uh, following the play and he hears a couple of lines and it's like dynamite going off in his head and he suddenly realizes the play's moved on and he's missed a bit in between and this right. it doesn't matter doesn 't really matter there'll be another there'll be another blast of dynamite coming along in a minute you know? yeah exactly yeah. But, but also he being getting away from the literary thing again, he says if, if he was in a town and he was going out and there wasn't a Shakespeare performance in English on he'd rather go and see Shakespeare in another language than go and see anything else. Wow
0: you know Andy, you touched on something there's a certain access- accessibility to Dylan and Shakespeare right because there's nothing to stop anyone from picking up a, a Shakespeare text and, and mangling it all. all they want, you know, mm-hmm.
2: they do it all the time.
0: Yeah. Speaking from personal experience, you know, because yeah, you've never mangled Shakespeare. <laughs> I've,
2: I've mangled Dylan. You know? <laughs> hey, Dylan mangles Dylan all the time. We call it art. <laughs> <laughs>
0: trying to make here is that is that you know as a teenager you pick up a guitar and for the first time and before the month is out you can be playing Dylan songs with the three chords that you learned and I think that that's there's something beautiful about that accessibility
2: I I think there is too but I'm very strongly getting the feeling that your view of Dylan lasts from about 1962 to 1964 and you don't realize that he's had a very very long and abundant career since then (laughs) (laughs) very true yes very true indeed it's like Shakespeare had only ever written Henry he'd you know, only, only ever written Henry VI you know?
1: and Romeo and Juliet
2: <laughs> yeah that was it that's as far as you go <laughs>
0: Touche. Well, if the uh, never-ending tour continues, I'll have to check out a Dylan show when he comes to our neighbourhood.
2: Oh, you'll have to. I mean, and the the, the great thing about him is he, he keeps he keeps bringing Shakespeare back into things. So you know, his last interviews, he mentioned Shakespeare yet again. I don't know if you're aware, Derek, because it's you know is is recent. But Dylan had the new album out uh, during lockdown which he prefaced with a song called murder most foul 17minute song on the assassination of John F Kennedy starting with a Hamlet quote which Very also which also has Lady Macbeth as a character in it and ends well nearly ends just before the end with a direct quote from Julius Caesar so Dylan uh, and you there's, there's, there's more Dylan in that there's more uh, Shakespeare in the Dylan album as well there's a there's a quote from sonnet 100 and I was saying that you often get and I, I'm sure Shakespeare we know Shakespeare did this too sometimes writers just steal good lines and put okay. them in their own songs they're not doing it to be alluding, you know, Shakespeare was at St Paul's. He had maybe two hours. You can't buy lots of books and cart them back. But you know, it's a couple of good lines as he was flicking through and used them, or he uses Ovid particularly to, to show what he's doing. Well, Dylan's got various ways of showing you that yeah, he's deliberately doing something. Like Sonnet One Hundred, there, there's a line about uh, time, idle time. And you think, I'm if that's sonnet 100. And then a few lines later in the same song, he says crooked knife, which is from the same sonnet. So we know that Shakespeare stole and now you've established that
1: <laughs> Dylan was a thief as well.
2: Can, can, can I interrupt here and say, yeah, yeah. I know Dylan's office. <laughs> I know Dylan's office and they've been very good to me that I did not say that. Okay. <laughs> I have a 10,000 word chapter on, uh, on what is plagiarism and what is not thief. But I am a thief of thought, says Dylan. There we go. He can, get, he, can get, he can get quite annoyed about it, but what he says is it's the folk process. That's how he grew up. That's how folk music works.
1: So it's not thievery in the negative way. It's just he's borrowing and he's fusing and merging just like Shakespeare did. You know, who doesn't? Right. No, everybody does. Right. But my next question is that Shakespeare also changed sort of the style of theatre and the way theatre works was thought about and i'm thinking about certain musicians people like beck and moby and there's this guy justin roberts i urge you to listen to a song by him called henrietta's hair which is completely dylan-esque do you think dylan has changed the way people think about music and look at music
2: i think dylan's changed the way people think about life the world so but, but definitely music his influences i mean that, that again you could you know It's a bit like Shakespeare's influence. Obviously, Shakespeare's a much wider influence in life and everything. But if you cut Dylan down to modern music, it's an overwhelming influence. It's just, it's everywhere. I think there's an interesting connection there, actually, between, again, taking us back the live thing. Both Dylan and Shakespeare were all about getting bums on seats. They were all about getting people to pay and come and see the show. And Shakespeare's plays were, they were the pop music of the day. They were certainly uh, rough places to go. They were places young people wanted to go and they wanted something new all the time. So Shakespeare moved from genre to genre, as as we know from, you know, you've got a slasher movie in Titus Andronicus and you've got Romeo and Juliet, you've got romantic comedies. You've then got later in life, the pastoral coming in. You've got all these different things. They're not necessarily driven by Shakespeare's genius, possibly once he was established, you could say that. But at the beginning, he's moving from genre to genre. But what I think, both he and Dylan do, is they go to a genre and they completely, they completely dominate it and then they move on to the next one and they completely dominate that. So. Yeah, to go back to Jarrett's time at the beginning of the '60s, Bob, Bob was the you know he, he was the <laughs> Prince of folk music. Then he was the coolest guy in rock and roll. Then he, he was country rock and Nashville skyline and Lay Lady Lay. Lay, Lay. And that's just in the '70s. You know, three completely different genres. And you go through Shakespeare in the 1590s, you've got him taking whatever it is that people want to come and see because that's how he eats, after all. That's how he pays his family's uh, bills. He'll put on what people want and he'll completely dominate the genre and then move on. And that means that both of them have this cascading influence. There's a huge Dylan influence in country music, which is maybe not what, and of course he did gospel music and everything else as well. So I think there's a connection there between how brilliant they are in any genre in their field and their fields being live music and live theater. So
1: Andrew, you also provided us with a,
2: I believe it was an unpublished prologue. <laughs> oh, I'd forgotten about that. Um, yes, un- un- unpublished because it's so it's it's so controversial. No, no, that wasn't the case. It was um, I I had an idea of what might go in the back of a book or the front of a book that would attract people thinking, what on earth is this guy doing writing about Bob Dylan and, of course, William Shakespeare of all people. So I wrote I wrote a little prologue that didn't make it into the book at the end. Are you um, going to ask me to read it or something? now? Oh yeah, of course. Why not? <laughs> I felt something was coming on there. Yes. Just hold a
1: second. Don't you
2: think you should read it, Garrett?
0: Absolutely, yeah.
2: I should, I should say, by the way, this is, uh, this is not what the book's like. It's supposed to be like a, an attention catcher. Right. So
1: okay.
2: here we go. A young man from the provinces dreams of conquering the entertainment world. He repeatedly copies the old masters until he feels in command of the art that has inspired him and that he wants to build a successful life pursuing. His success is met with jealous opposition. Nonetheless, he achieves artistic greatness while simultaneously entertaining the crowds. His fame grows as he agilely moves from genre to genre, assimilating and mastering them all with an uncanny grace and control. He stays one step ahead of the pack in the cutthroat business of producing hits for novelty-hungry audiences. He fuses the popular entertainment with the art of the classical masters. The languages of the street and the Bible reside together in his writing. Everyone has questions about him. What's his religion? Is he this thing or is he this other thing? Where do his ideas come from? And how did he go from dreaming of being a poet to turning rowdy popular entertainment into works of acclaimed literary genius? This story could start around 1590 or 1960. Either way, its path and the answers to the questions those paths engendered are startlingly similar. Uh, I mean, it's totally intriguing. That's lovely. <laughs> they should have put it on the back of the book, shouldn't they? <laughs>
0: yes! It feels like a lovely way to wrap things up
2: today. Can I say one thing to your acting audience and, and the actors that come in, if you have time? Yeah. It's just to say that we all wish we could help more. You know, this time when theatres are just being absolutely hammered. Cambridge Shakespeare Festival this year, obviously, even though it's outdoor. I've got lots of friends in the theatre business and family involved in it, and I know what everybody's going through, and we all wish we could help more. And fundraising doesn't always work because some of us have lost money too, and we've got lots of causes to put money into, but we're, we are we're I want to send all our love uh, and basically say we wish you all much, not just the actors and directors, though they were first in my mind, but everybody, you know, the people doing the lighting, the sound engineers, the people doing the catering. I can't wait till you're open again and we can flood back and fill your wonderful halls. Beautiful, Andy. Thank you. I really mean it. You know, I feel it deep inside.
0: Andy, it's been delightful talking to you today.
2: No, it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, thumbs up I'm giving you again. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, Andy. Take care of yourselves. You too. Take care.
0: Bye. Bye. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for The State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard in the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.